so um, tonight we will we will be on the seventh judgment in Amos that is against Judah, and we'll be in chapter two. So if you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page ten fifty six. So we will um, we'll do a little bit of a recap. Um, we have a little bit of an updated map for you tonight. So Judah is the seventh judgment that Amos gives prior to coming to Israel. And so we are on the seventh and final non-Israel judgment. And you can see from, from these red lines that, that Israel has now been covered as these judgments have spanned back and forth. So starting in Damascus in the north and coming down to Gaza and going up to Tyre and down to Edom, up to Ammon, down to Moab, and now over into Judah. So you remember that we've studied about the cruelty from Damascus, the exploiting nature from those in Gaza, the betrayal of Tyre against Israel, the enmity between the descendants of Esau and Edom, the murder of Ammon, the contempt of Moab, and tonight we'll actually study about the contempt of Judah as well. So tonight, like we said, we will study about Judah. So if you would go to to the next um, next slide, please. We will uh, we'll consider a little bit about the history of the nations of Judah and Israel, and um, they'll give us some understanding about what we'll read tonight. Here we go. Okay. So. Um, you can see over here from this map the separation between Israel and the nation of Judah. And you remember that, um, that at one time Israel was a united kingdom and that was the entire kingdom of Israel which would be all of Israel and all of Judah were one nation. So God established the, the first king of Israel to be Saul and then David, and then Solomon. And through some of the things that we've studied over these last few weeks, we've kind of seen a little bit of the backstory about how these nations, how this nation would become separate after Solomon's reign. Solomon enslaved his own people. It created friction between the tribes. And so ten tribes in the north in Israel, and ultimately two tribes in the south, would become Judah. So, just for the sake of kind of understanding a little bit of timeline, I've cut a few, put a few dates up here. So, the United Kingdom of Israel split in 922. So, 922 years before Jesus, the nation of Israel would split into two distinct nations of Israel and Judah. 
After that, there would be some 200 years between 922 and 722 before Israel, the northern kingdom, would go into captivity into Assyria. About 135 years after that, Judah would go into captivity to Babylon. Now, it's not important, the math and all this exactly, but I do want you to see a few things. Now, in really small print, I don't expect anybody can read any of this, but on the top up here, I've listed all the 19 kings that Israel had in those 200 years. And the 335 years that Judah had on their own, there was 20 kings. 20 to Israel's 19 over an additional 100 years. If you can see even just a little bit, you can tell that some of these names are emboldened for Judah. Scripture lists no kings in Israel after the kingdom was divided that were considered good. In fact, every king in Israel is said to do evil in the sight of the Lord or is said to follow in their father's ways, doing their father's evil. In Judah, for the 20 kings listed, only five of them, does God say, are good. The other 15 kings are said to do evil, just like their fathers, evil in the sight of the Lord, evil leading the people of Israel into idolatry. So, of 39 combined kings after Solomon, only five did any good in the sight of the Lord. Ultimately, we, we know the end of the story. We know that, that our we know that our ancestors in faith ended up in captivity. They started in captivity and they ended up in captivity. The story of scripture is about going in and out of captivity. Okay. Um, turn with me to Amos chapter 2, and we'll read about this judgment on Judah. In Amos chapter 2, we'll read verses 4 and 5. Amos says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies led them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. So, all of these words are for Israel, right? The words about the six Gentile nations and now Judah are really a prophecy leading up to the judgment the Lord will give to Israel. But now he is judging the southern kingdom of Judah, which a short time before were the brothers and sisters of this one nation that God would bring out of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, Israel. This nation that had 
five good kings compared to the no good kings of Israel, this nation, God says, has despised his law. Amos says, because they have despised the law of the Lord. So the word here for despised is is a Hebrew word, ma'az. And it is translated commonly as rejected or despised or even scorned. It means to reject or treat as loathsome. So three places I, I want us to look at to understand this word a little bit more. First, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. In the church's Bible, it will be on page 144. Leviticus 26. So in Leviticus 26, the Lord is providing a promise of blessing, but also consequence. So we'll read verses 15 through 16. This is the Lord speaking, and he says, I will, excuse me, in in 15, and if you despise my statutes, let's back up to 14, I'm sorry. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. There in in 15 it says, if you despise my statutes, and this is the word that we, we read of in Amos, the Lord offers this caution to his people he says if you keep my commandments there will be certain blessing for you there will be life for you there will be an inheritance for you but if you not just fail to keep but if you despise and refuse and abhor if you reject or treat as loathsome my commandments there will be a consequence for you Turn over a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 10. First Samuel chapter 10 in the church's Bible will be on page 321. Israel has been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They have moved into the promised land. They have wavered in God's ways and out of God's ways and God sends judges to to kind of help pull them back to his directions God told them that he wanted to be their God and king but the people wanted to be like everyone else they wanted a king and so hear these words that the Lord says in verse 19 it says but you today have rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversaries your tribulations, and you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. 
This is the same word that we've read over in Amos about despising and rejecting and treating with loathsomeness that the Lord has said were in the hearts of the Israelites in wanting a king other than him. Third place we'll turn is in Hosea chapter 4. Just, um, just a few pages after Amos, for Amos, sorry. And the church's Bible will be on page 1041. A familiar passage in Hosea 4, 6. Hosea is talking about why God's people are being rejected and destroyed. He says, my people are destroyed, verse 6, for their lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being, excuse me, reject you from being priests from me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget you as children. This is perhaps the most arresting use of this word because God describes what it means to refuse his ways. We're not just refusing God's commandments, but we're refusing intimate knowledge of who he is. God tells those in Israel that because they have done this, he will in fact reject them as well as his children. This word, ma'az, that we're talking about for rejection and despisement is a synonym for the word we learned last week, contempt. And I believe that it is the fuller, deeper understanding of what contempt means spiritually. It means to reject and despise, but it relates to our relationship to the Lord and keeping of his word. I didn't even realize this last week when we were, we were studying about this, and I even said something like, we might have contempt for friends or for family or for spouses or even spiritual matters, right? And lo and behold, the next lesson is that the Lord would show us that his people in Judah had contempt for his ways and for his word. The law of the Lord is the fullness of the Torah. The commandments are the actions. Turn back with me to Amos chapter 2. Amos says in the next verse, and have not kept his commandments. How could God's people keep his commandments if they have first despised them? Amos uses uh, one of my favorite words here, shamar. This word that he says they have not kept or shamarred, if you will, his commandments. This word means to to keep watch, to guard, or to observe. And it's frequently used in Scripture to describe how God's commandments are reacted to. They are kept watch of. They are guarded as a treasure. 
and they are observed with a full heart. This is the place that Judah was in rebellion and sin. Remember, we just read a few minutes ago that Amos says, for three transgressions and for four. And, and, and though we've read this every week, surely this idea is cemented in our minds. The full measure of transgression and then some. Therefore, the sins of Judah were innumerable. So most of the past few weeks as we've studied about these judgments, we focused on the crime or the transgression of it itself. But tonight we'll focus on the judgment. So in verse 5, Amos continues on and he says, What will happen to Judah because of this great transgression? It says, But I will send a fire upon Judah and shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. So turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 24. If you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page 454. 2 Kings 24. We'll read some in, in chapters 24 and 25, and they will ultimately describe to us the complete demise of the nation of Judah. If you don't mind to go all the way off on these lights, please, um, this will show a little bit. So I, I want you to see two maps that, that are probably really difficult to kind of see all of the details, and that's okay. Because um, the first one shows what is the Assyrian Empire, and these are the, the people that overtook Israel. And so around 721 or 722, about 200 years after Israel and Judah split, Israel would be overtaking, overtaken by this group, the Assyrians. And you can see what is this very small area of Judah right here. The Assyrians came from the north and came from the east, and they just swept over Israel so easily. Except for this small little area right here of Judah that would remain. Surrounded on all sides. Where we'll read about in chapters 24 and 25 would be some hundred years later that Babylon. Babylon would come from even further north and even further east. And they would conquer all the area that Assyria was in. They would overtake this nation of Assyria, and ultimately they would do the same thing, and they would circle around this small area right here of Judah. So what we'll read about here in chapters 24 and 25 are the fulfillment of God's prophecy that Israel and Judah would be swallowed up and would be conquered because of their complete rebellion against the Lord for years and years and years and years. Um, 
and you can leave those lights up if you don't mind, Bill, but if you can go and turn to the last slide, please. So this is a, a zoomed-in map of what we just saw before in Babylon. Babylon is this great, huge nation right here, and Judah is this small, little sliver that is surrounded on all sides by Babylon. Imagine this picture like a map of the United States and a very small area, the size maybe, I don't even know, of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex that is surrounded on all sides by an enemy and sustained like that for over 130 years. So there are four people that we'll read about in this story. The first is Nebuchadnezzar, who we know is the king of Babylon. And then three different kings of this small area of Judah. They all have, the first two have very similar names. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Madaniah. Jehoiakim would reign for 11 years in Judah. His son, Jehoiachin, would reign for just three months. And then Jehoiachin's uncle would reign for 11 years. Okay, so we'll read together chapter 24 and a lot of chapter 25. It says, In his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiachin became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and because of the innocent blood that he had shed for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did are they not written about in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers then Jehoiachin his son reigned in his place, and the king of Egypt did not come out of his land any more, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehustha, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to to all that his father had done. At the time of the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes and officers, went out to the king of Babylon, and the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the houses of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried into captivity all Jerusalem 
all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, ten thousand captives and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained except the poorest of the land. And he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty men of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, seven thousand, and craftsmen and smiths, one thousand, all who were strong and fit for war, the king of Babylon brought, to, brought captive to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made Mattathiah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatul, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah. Then he finally, that he finally cast them out of his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land, and the city wall was broken through, that all the men of war fled at night, by which the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped around against the city, and the king went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him, so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He, bear, he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord, the carts of the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered. The fire pans and the basins and the things of solid gold and the solid silver the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, on, on sea, excuse me, the two pillars, one sea and the carts which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the cap capital on it was bronze. The height of the capital was 3 cubits, and the network 
and pomegranates all around the capital were of bronze. The second pillar was the same, with a network. And the captain of the guard took Syriad, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief recruiting officer of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty people of the land who were found in the city. So Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away from its own land. Okay, I know this is a a long story and a lot of details going on here, but surely we can understand a little bit of this, that the picture is that Judah has completely been stripped and completely gone into captivity, and Jerusalem has been completely burned. So Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, right? You can, you can see that it, it, before this all happened, Judah was surrounded on all sides by an incredibly massive and strong superpower in the world at that time. Some say the most powerful nation in the world at that time is surrounding Judah on every side. Judah is a small and insignificant nation, yet for 135 years after Israel has gone into captivity, Judah has somehow remained in strength and protection and covered. I mean, this very idea is just unconscionable to imagine how this has happened. That a nation who has overtaken Assyria, has overtaken this incredibly large part of the world, has left this small area to themselves. We read about in verse 1 how they were a vassal country. You might remember that from last week. We studied that Moab was a vassal country to Israel. Right, it says in, in verse 1, it says that Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. So Je- Jehoiakim and Judah are an, an, a, a nation that has sworn allegiance to Babylon, right? To Nebuchadnezzar. They've shaken hands. They've had an agreement. I mean, I don't know that Babylon really needed this small little nation and their army to support them, but they have come in agreement together and said that much. Jehoiakim gets this idea that he will turn and rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, think of the insanity of being surrounded on all sides and having an allegiance with Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world perhaps, and deciding, I will rebel against him. But that's what he does. Verse 2 says what the Lord's response is, not just to this situation, but at the culmination point here. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. This was the fulfillment of prophecy from Amos and several other places, that God would hold them accountable who refused his ways. 
God did not just allow this to happen. God commanded it from the heavens to happen. He used Israel's, excuse me, Judah's enemies as instruments of his judgment and his love. Next, what happens is that, that after this, Nebuchadnezzar says, um, no, thank you. I will not allow you to rebel and overthrow my kingdom and government. So he will battle with Jehoiakim, and ultimately Jehoiakim will die. Um, we read in verse 6 that he would rest with his fathers. As a result, his son, Jehoiachin, would assume the throne. It says that Nebuchadnezzar allows him to assume the throne. It doesn't take long, and after three months, it even says that Jehoiachin does evil in the sight of the Lord. Ultimately, he will be killed by Nebuchadnezzar and his army. So, next, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Jehoiachin's uncle and says, you will be king. So there is still, even at this point, this kingdom. Even after this crazy person rebels, and this crazy person rebels and does evil in the sight of the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar somehow has the, the, the mercy to say, okay, well, let's put your uncle in power. He does, however, change his name to Zedekiah, and his uncle Zedekiah would rule for 11 years in Judah before ultimately he would do evil. He would rebel against the Lord as well. I don't know if you saw that as we were reading this great passage. Uh, he would commit evil, and he would commit evil, and he would commit evil. Right? You see, the, the contempt of the people that are against God's ways cannot be reckoned with. It cannot be understood. Sometimes we, we encounter people in our lives and we think, how can they think what they're thinking? How can they do what they're doing? When the Lord has shown us something, we realize, how could I do what I was doing? How could I think what I was thinking? God's people repeat and repeat and repeat evil against him. And God's mercy is to, to stave off his wrath as long as possible. So there we have it. Judah was reaping what had been prophesied again and again. Two scriptures I, I want us to look at before we leave this section. Look at, at chapter 25, verse 9. It says he, this is Nebuzaradan, Nebuchadnezzar's um, captain, says he burned the house of the Lord and all the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem. That is, all the houses of the great he burned with fire. Boy, that is a lot of words to get an idea that Amos's prophecy is being fulfilled, that God would send a fire upon the house of Jerusalem and completely destroy it. This is the house that God has built. This is the house that, 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 that David had, right? This is the house that then God built for Solomon. 
These are all the great things that had been erected in the name of the Lord, and God would send a fire to completely destroy him because God's people had completely destroyed his name and refused his ways. Last scripture we'll look at here. Look at 25-21. Second half of it says, Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. Now these are, these are easy, easy words to read because we know the story, but the pictures here are so deep. See, Israel's land was its inheritance. It was the picture of salvation, right? They had wandered. They had been in slavery. God delivered them. God put them on the land he wanted them to be on. And he, he surrounded them with protection, right? For 135 years after they had broken away from Israel, God was protecting them from the wrath of their enemies. But Judah was carried away captive. They weren't just carried away. They were carried away captive. From their own inheritance. So what's going on here is that we, we know God is fulfilling his prophecy. He sent a word upon Judah that shall devour its palaces. Again and again throughout the Old Testament, God sends judges and prophets and words through his people to warn his people. Right, I just, I just can't believe even over the course of these 22 years and 3 months that this warning that was coming louder and louder and louder. God gave a chance to each of these three men. And they refused it again. I mean, it's remarkable. You can, you can see... I just can't get, get out of my mind this picture of God's protection for those who are surrounded by the enemy. And I think about the enemy that has certainly surrounded us. Not just the things we want to acknowledge in this world like bad coworkers or friends or family that don't do what we want or seem to rub us the wrong way. I don't mean those kind of opponents or enemies. I mean the certain spiritual enemies that if we could see into the spiritual realm right now are, are certainly camped around this building where God's word is being given. And they are waiting to bring destruction to us as soon as we leave. In fact, they're working right now in the spiritual realm to confuse the things we're hearing because they don't want us to grab a hold of God's truth. And God's protection is for us. His goal is that we would receive this and hear this. And his goal was the same for Judah to not commit the same thing as Israel and be carried away. But his word will be fulfilled. So we've studied about these other nations that were Gentiles. And imagine if you're Israel hearing about all these Gentile nations those that they didn't really like anyway, those that they had an axe to grind, those that had rubbed them the wrong way, right? Those that we might say create conflict in our own lives. And we've heard these judgments against them. And they've progressed and they've gotten stronger and stronger. And now we hear about our brother in Judah who even had the four good kings, who God allowed even longer than us, though they didn't know that, 
and we know that God judges without partiality. Right, God judges these Gentile nations for their crimes against humanity, for their places that are immoral, perhaps. But now God brings judgment for not keeping his law. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1 will be on page 201 if you're in the church's Bible. Moses is appointing leaders to help him to judge and to lead the people of Israel. He says in 16 through 18, he says, Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with them. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid if any man's in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case is too hard for you. Bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you that you shall, that, excuse me, and I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. From an early time, the Lord taught the Israelites that he did not judge one different than another, that he judged brothers the same, that he judged strangers the same. There was this principle that even, even those who had not heard God's word, that there was an accountability to it. Turn over to Acts chapter 10. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1266. Cornelius is not Jewish, but he's a man who fears the Lord. And this is what Peter said to him. It says in verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in him every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So Peter tells us not only does God not, God not judge with partiality, but he receives those who receive him. Finally, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's got something else for us to say in 1 Peter. We'll read verses 15 through 18. Peter says, but, he, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, 
conduct yourselves throughout your time and stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. I've been staring at this map for the last couple of days. I couldn't find a map that, that, that showed this exact picture of Babylon and, and then included the place of Judah, so I had to, to add it, but I made sure it wasn't any bigger than it needed to be. We are like Judah, a seemingly small and insignificant vessel. God's love is to provide protection for us on all sides. And we want that protection, like some of the cheesy songs that exist out there, to follow us around whatever we may do, whatever we may accidentally come into, whatever choices we may make that are completely against God. We want that protection to continue to follow us. But God's protection, like for the Israelites, is is by a, a cloud of covering and fire by night it leads and it directs it does not chase down in our enmity in our evil and in our sin like some of the songs so sing it does not refuse to acknowledge who we are the decisions that we've made likewise God's love does not show partiality but when God gave Judah over When he allowed Babylon to overtake them, that wasn't because he stopped loving them. God's love was being manifested still. He gave them over for the salvation of their souls. I've never seen this picture more fully. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he's talking about someone who is immoral and who defiles the church. And this is what he says to do with them. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now this is a tough word. This is not a coffee mug verse. To say one that is corrupting the things of God, that has given themselves over to the ways of the evil one, should be plucked out and removed and given over to that evil without protection for the salvation of their soul. But that is exactly what God did after hundreds and hundreds of years of unrepented sin and refusal and contempt for his ways. God gave them over to the enemy for the salvation of their soul. This is what Paul's talking about in Corinthians 10 when he says these things were given for our example. He's not just talking about the warm, fuzzy stories. He's talking about these things were given for our example. That we might not commit the same places of sin as the Israelites and those in Judah, but that we may heed his word, that we may stay in his protection. But if we refuse it, it is still his love for the salvation of our soul that we would be given over to our desires. Because 
what I want to turn to the end of Amos. I want to spoil Amos a little bit. Go to the very last chapter of Amos. Very last chapter in chapter 9. This is the good news. That God gave them over for the salvation of their souls. That he put them in captivity that they might be saved. The last verses of Amos will be so wonderful to get to. He says in verse 14, I will bring back the captives of Israel. They will build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and they shall no longer be pulled up. From the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the good news. The good news is that for the salvation of our soul, God gives us over to evil ways that we may recognize it, that we may leave the fullness of sin, that we might return to the land, to the inheritance forever. The almighty love of God will use any means necessary for us to see our self-imposed bondage and seek him for rescue. This is salvation. This is the mercy of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.